Uh, good, um, good morning again. If you walked in during the first couple of songs, my name is Matt, and today we're going into part four of our series as we walk through the life of Jesus. Uh, what we're simply doing is we're taking the 12 weeks between Christmas and Easter, and we're kind of plowing through the main highlights of Jesus' life. And one thing we've been noticing throughout this entire series, or one thing we've been emphasizing, is that Jesus' story has the power to change your story. Uh, the more you know him, the more you follow him, the more you understand about him, the more it impacts the way you live and the things that you do. <clears throat> and today in particular, we're going to see how the, a certain account of Jesus' life really gets you to think about what you do and why you do it. Because, let's be honest, sometimes we do things that we don't really understand why we do. Um, look at any middle school boy, Right? There are at least a dozen things every day that a middle school boy does that we don't, we don't understand about ourselves when we were in middle school, and we think back at it later, and I don't mean to pick on middle school boys because I know there's some here. You're, you're cool. You're cool. Um, but when I was in middle school, I know that I did things that just made no sense whatsoever. For example, we had this game in middle school called Bloody Knuckles, but it's different than, than I, I heard some of you have heard about it. It's not where you just hit knuckles back and forth. The way we played Bloody Knuckles is you'd put your knuckles down on a table across from someone else, and they would have a nickel, and they'd take that nickel and swipe it at your knuckles as hard and as fast as they could, and the first one who quit lost, okay? So Bloody Knuckles in middle school. Why on earth did we play that game? I have no idea. I believe it was partially brain damage. Um, middle school, your brain actually loses some, some stuff, and then it comes back later. But I don't know. I don't know. We do crazy things sometimes. And middle school, about that age range, you, you know, we can kind of pick on that. But let's be honest. Adults, we do silly things too. We just do all sorts of silly things. Um, at least as I look back at my adult life and my middle school life, I can say that I've never done one thing that I'm kind of proud of. I'm kind of proud of. I've never eaten one of these. <laughs> never done it. And I heard about this. It came out, what, about a month ago, this whole Tide Pod challenge where you have to eat one of these detergent things for the laundry machine, for the washing machine. Um, and if you can eat it, you're supposedly cool. I don't know how it goes, but you eat one of these things on video, and then you upload the video so that other people can see you eating it. And it just became this viral thing, so much so that now YouTube and social media sites have had to take these videos down. Now, if that was you, I'm not judging you. I'm just saying I'm glad that wasn't me. Because let's face it, whether it was that or something else, all of us have done things that we really don't know why we've done. And I thought about the Tide Challenge, I thought about the Bloody Knuckles thing, and I kind of made a connection here. You see, we crave attention, don't we? We crave attention. We love attention. The more people that look at us or notice us or follow us or like us or watch us, the better we feel. And I think there's one sp specific thing with, with our world today and especially the kind of the younger generation coming up, but it affects all of us. I believe that we often uh, confuse attention for approval. If people are paying attention to me, that must mean I'm doing something right. And, and I'm, that's, that's a way to validate who I am and what I'm doing. And so we confuse attention for approval. Well, why do we like approval so much? This is where we get into the message for today. The reason we like approval so much is because approval goes hand in hand with confidence. 
Approval goes hand in hand with confidence. In fact, I'd say this. This isn't on your sheet yet. This is just bonus points. The more approval you feel, the more confidence that you have. Isn't that true? Like, there was probably that one sports game or that one recital or that one performance you had, and you felt like, eh, it was okay. But people came up to you afterwards, and they said, my goodness, I didn't know you had that in you, that thing you did with the ball over there. How'd you do that? And you were like, yeah, yeah, I did pretty good, yeah. And, and it changed the way you viewed yourself. It gave you a sense of confidence so that when the next game came or the next performance arose, guess what? You felt so much better about yourself. We crave attention. We crave approval because it gives us this sense of confidence. But sometimes we can crave it so much that it makes us do things that are harmful to ourselves or even harmful to our relationship with God, which brings us into our point for today. You see, Jesus had this amazing sense of confidence about him. It's one of the things that people noticed first. When he stood up to talk and do his thing, people would notice, what kind of authority is this? He speaks with such authority, such certainty, such confidence. And today I want to show you where that came from. Because when you understand where Jesus found his confidence from, when you understand his story and what fueled him, it has the power to change yours. So this is the fourth part in our series. We're getting towards the end or even a little bit past the end of Jesus' first year in the public ministry. He had three years altogether between his baptism and uh, his uh, uh, death. And so this is about a year into it. Now Jesus has been teaching. He's been doing miracles. People have been taking notice of him. And now it seems for the first time in his public ministry where people are recognizing him, he actually returns to his hometown of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth returns to Nazareth. Now, some of you this won't apply to, but I just want to get this thought in your mind before we open up to to Luke chapter 4. What did you do before you went back to your high school reunion? 10-year reunion, 15, 20, whatever it was. What was going through your mind before you went back? Some of you are like, I don't go back to reunions. That's not my thing. I don't want to see those people. But some of you, you kind of go back. But here's the thing. When you go back to the reunion, back to your hometown, whatever it is, aren't you thinking to yourself maybe a year before or six months before or a month before, you're thinking, I should probably lose 10 pounds. I should probably wash the car. I should probably wax the car. That's what I should do. Um, I should probably start to you know, brush up on my accomplishments from the last 10 years. You see, when you go back to your hometown crowd and back to your uh, re- high school reunion, whatever it is, you kind of want to impress people, right? We want to impress people so that they th- think highly of us and so that they approve of us and so we can feel more confident. Well, we're going to see Jesus return to his hometown, his little homecoming, and He's going to have so much confidence, but it, uh, here's the, the spoiler. It has nothing to do with their approval of him. So let's look at this account. It's recorded in Luke chapter 4, and also a guy named Mark actually recorded the same incident, but his details aren't quite as full as Luke's. So we're looking at Luke chapter 4, and here's what happened. So Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. So he went to church when he went home. And this wasn't going to church to show people how religious he was or how great he was. This was his custom. No matter where he went, on any city, any town, if it was a Saturday, if it was the Sabbath, he would go to the synagogue. 
Now, synagogue is a little bit different than what, we've, what we have today as church, especially in, in an auditorium. So synagogue is nothing like this. But the way a synagogue was set up was really interesting, and it was all around the Bible. You see, back then, they didn't have bound Bibles like we have today. They didn't have Bible apps. They didn't have screens with Scripture on it. They had a series of individual scrolls with different parts of the Old Testament written on it. So the way the synagogue was set up is they'd have the first half of the building as you walked in was for seating, and it was a little platform where the, the teacher or the rabbi could, could uh, preach from. But then towards the back, they had this part of the wall or even a cabinet against the wall where they had all the scrolls of the Old Testament. So whenever the person came up to read, they would fetch the appropriate scroll, bring it out to him, unroll it to the proper place, and then he could begin reading from it. So there you go. That's what the synagogue was like. That's totally applicable for your life on Monday morning, right? Now now you know what the synagogue was like. But here's the other thing. Apparently what happened in this synagogue and on that Sabbath was that the, the leaders in Nazareth decided, hey, Jesus is in town. What do you say we let him preach for the weekend? which wasn't totally unheard of. Um, It was common to have leaders, patriarchs from the community come and read scriptures and then lead a discussion on them. And so it wasn't totally unheard of, but by now they had been hearing that Jesus can teach. He can preach. He can do other great things. He can do miracles. So let's get him up in front of the people and let's see what this hometown boy can do. So verse 17, here's what happened. Jesus stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, unrolling it, this is a process. You've got to unroll it, find the right spot. Unrolling it, he found the part that he was looking for. Now, when he opened up Isaiah and picked Isaiah, the people would have said, oh yeah, everyone picks Isaiah. It's like opening up to Psalms, or in our case, opening up to one of Jesus' stories. Like, we always talk about Jesus. So, you know, it's kind of like, okay, everyone picked Isaiah back in the day. In fact, if you were to look at all the scrolls on the back wall, probably Isaiah would be one of the most worn-out ones, one of the most used ones, most fingerprints on it. And the reason was is because even though Isaiah's words were written 750 years before this happened, before these people lived, They recognized that God gave Isaiah prophetic words about what the Messiah would be like and what he would do. So they'd read Isaiah. They'd study Isaiah. They'd look at his words. They'd speculate. What would the Messiah be like? Where would he come from? What would he do? What should we wait for? What will it be like when God is with us? And so Isaiah was well-worn, well-worn. And so when Jesus picked that one, they were like, oh, yeah, good, Isaiah. Let's see what he does with this. So he opens it up, and the section he picks is so interesting because this section was one that the people would have recognized as a section where Isaiah was specifically talking about the Messiah who the people were waiting for. He opened up to Isaiah, what we call chapter 61, and this is what he read that day. Except he didn't read it in English. It was not, but anyway, this is the content of what he read. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Now, the people would have recognized this applied to Isaiah who wrote it, but they also would have recognized this is speaking ahead to the Messiah in a bigger way, a greater way. So the spirit of the Lord is on me. In, in translation, God approves of me. He favors me. Well, Why? 
the, the Spirit of the Lord is on me for this task, to do this thing, because he has anointed me to proclaim, proclaim, proclaim. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, news that will change your life, good news for the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and pay attention to this last one, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim the year or the era of God's approval. And he goes through all these things, and the people have to be sitting there listening like, you've got to be kidding me. He's actually doing this. He's going to refer to some scriptures that talk about the Messiah, and we know he's been claiming to be the one. And in this section, isn't it interesting? Yeah, there's things that the Messiah would do, heal people, get, you know, um, do things, uh, get, share good news with the poor, all these things. There's things he would do, but the, the point of this is it's not time to do things yet. Right now it's just time to proclaim. He would need to get the word out and preach and teach and, and share with people why this is so important for him to do. So the people are like leaning in and Jesus finishes reading this section and they're like, okay, let's see what he does with this. So it goes on. So Jesus, after he had finished reading, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant. And it's almost like Luke is recording this in slow motion. Why all these details? Well, people were, you know, focused on this. Gave it back to the attendant. The attendant goes to the back of the synagogue, puts it back in the wall. Jesus sat down in his chair, and, and it says this. It was so drawn out. It says that the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. They were about to fall off their chair. Drool was coming out of their mouths. They were just sitting there waiting for what this hometown boy was going to share next. How would he explain this section from Isaiah that he, perhaps he's going to claim refers to himself? So we don't get the whole message. We don't get the whole thing, but we get his opening thought. Jesus says this. Get this, get this. He says this. He began by saying to them, today, hey, today, right now, today. This has been waiting for 750 years, but today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And in today's language, he would have dropped the mic. Boom. Now, we don't get the rest of the message, but it's understood that after this, he began by saying this, he would go on to defend this and to explain this and to share why this scripture was to be fulfilled. And the people, they're just, they're, they're watching, they're listening, they're waiting. But he's saying, hey, guys, this is being fulfilled today. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. Jesus went to his hometown. People are going to be more critical of him than normal because, let's face it, people you grew up with kind of, you know, they're going to be more critical of you. But he says to them, this scripture is fulfilled today in your hearing. He says it's, it's not that it was fulfilled by their response. The scripture wasn't fulfilled because they approved of what he said. It was simply fulfilled because Jesus did what he needed to do and he read what he needed to read. He was independent of anyone else's approval. What he came to do was all about what he needed to do. Which brings me to, to fill in number two, and this is an incomplete thought, and I'll explain why in a moment, but it's worth remembering. Confidence begins when the need for approval ends. You will see your confidence skyrocket if your confidence has nothing to do with the approval from the people around you, right? If, if you get those emails, and they're scathing, and they're, you know, tearing you apart, it's like, it doesn't matter. I don't need that approval. 
If someone comes up to you lovingly and says, hey, I think there's some things we can work on here. You can do this better. You can change this. And you're like, eh, doesn't matter. See, if your confidence has nothing to do with anyone's approval and anyone's feedback, your confidence is going to be through the roof. And I'll compare it to this. Your confidence will be like an unmanned fire hose on full blast. People may take videos of you, but only so they can capture the disaster. Confidence, which has nothing to do with anyone's approval, is just going out there crazy and there's no limits, there's no focus, there's no purpose to it. It's just full of itself. And it will end in disaster. But that's not what we see in Jesus here. You see, he has confidence and it doesn't depend on the approval of the people he's preaching to. Yet his confidence is focused and it results in the benefit of many. And as we finish this story, as we finish this account of Jesus' life, we're going to see why his confidence is so different. While it doesn't depend on the approval of people, there is something that brings it into focus and gives it great, great purpose. And here's how it continues. Luke 4, verse 22. So here's the interesting thing. I spent, I spent more time studying this verse and studying tearing apart the words and trying to figure it out. I spent more time on this one verse than I'm spending for this entire message talking to you. Um, because quite often when there's a verse that doesn't quite match or make sense, if you can kind of unravel it and figure it out, it brings extraordinary clarity to the rest of it. So here's the issue with this verse. I couldn't quite figure it out. 42, uh, 22 says this. So they listened to Jesus uh, speak, and afterwards all spoke well of him. And we're amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And it's almost this astonishment. They say, isn't this Joseph's son? Like, wow, where did that come from? And if you just look at it in the English at face value, it seems that they're genuinely happy that he's there and surprised and gracious and welcoming and speaking well of him. But when we look at Mark's account, and in fact, anytime you look at this phrase, isn't this Joseph's son, anytime that's in the, the New Testament, it's, a, it's derogatory. It's saying, this guy is nothing. This guy is nothing. And Mark's account even fleshes it out more. Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this Mary's son? Doesn't he have brothers and, and, uh, here that we know and, and sisters? Don't, didn't he grow up with us? We know who this is. And, and Mark says they were offended at this. So I tore this apart, tore this apart, and I'm like, how can I, how can I figure this out? And finally, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to leave it as the mo most plain, obvious way that Luke could record it and say what's on the screen is on the screen. The people spoke well of him. The Greek word is uh, also translated as testify or witness. So literally, people are like, testify, testify. They're, they're, and, and, and just as today it has a positive sense, back then that word um, has a positive sense. They were speaking well of him. They were acknowledging him. They were amazed, which, which means they're caught off guard. They're like, whoa, wait a minute. This is amazing. This is amazing. We're not sure about this. And then they said that he had gracious words, grace-filled words, good news for them. And it's like the, the moment it struck them, they're like, wow, this is great. But then as they thought about it, they said, well, wait a minute. Isn't this Joseph's son? He made some pretty big promises about who he is and what he's going to do. That's great, but isn't he Joseph's son? And immediately doubt and rejection filled 
their heart. And we do the same thing today. If, if you became a Christian as an adult or as you maybe refound God as an adult, there was that moment, uh, whether it was in church or in a class or as you're listening online or reading on your own, there was that moment where this joy flooded your heart and you thought to yourself, this is amazing. Whoa, wait a minute. God would love me even despite of my past. This is incredible. But then you got on with your life and you're like, but wait a minute, this means I need to reflect God's love in every way and I need to forgive that person and that person. I don't, I don't know about that kind of grace. The people in Nazareth were struggling here because they couldn't, they couldn't come to grips with this good news they were hearing but then also combine it with the, the person that they thought they knew who had grown up with them. So what if you were Jesus? So the crowd is kind of amazed, but they're doubting you, and they're not sure what to think. What, what would Jesus do? I could, I could market that, make a bracelet. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do in this moment? The people are, he's starting to lose the people. If I were writing the book of Luke, here's how I might go forward. So Jesus responded to them, to win your approval, I'll provide a miracle buffet for the next seven days. I'll heal everything wrong with you by the week after that and resolve all your family drama by Thanksgiving. (laughs) And if that wouldn't win their approval, I don't know what will because it takes a miracle to resolve some family drama. I know that. I know that. But if I were Jesus, isn't part of it, you know, out of grace, out of love, he wants to win people's approval for him? No. You see, by doing what he did, healing people, helping people, he won people's approval. He earned it. But his job was not to win people's approval. We'll say why in just a moment. But here's how Jesus really replied to them. So Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. So if you're going to a physician who claims he can heal a sore on your arm and you show up and you see that the physician has five of the same sores on his arm, you might pause and say, hold on, physician, you heal yourself first and then I'll believe and come back, right? And so the people of Nazareth are saying the same thing to Jesus. You claim to do all these things. How about we see some of it, show us some of it, and then we'll believe. And you will tell me, hey, do here in your hometown, what you have done in other places, what we've heard you do in places like Capernaum. Do here. Do here. We're, we're not interested in what you have to say. We just want to see what you can do. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when Jesus performed his first miracle. You see, miracles don't really change people's hearts. They just change the way people's minds work for a moment. A miracle can change your mind for a, for a while, but it's not lasting. So Jesus wasn't out there just to perform miracles for people. He wanted to touch the heart. And that required words, not miracles. And as he goes forward, he knows he's kind of losing them. So he's saying, hey, you know what? You're looking for miracles here. And here's the deal. He, he gets down to the heart of it in verse 24. He says, surely I tell you, truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted. In his hometown, no prophet finds approval from the people he grew up with. And he's about to cite some examples. First, he turns to the prophet Elijah, whom the people would have known. This is like the greatest person in in, uh, Jewish history, one of the greatest prophets. If you're going to use an illustration, Elijah will strike home. And here's what happened with Elijah. I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's 
time. Many widows, and there was a severe famine, and so these poor widows were trying to find food, trying to make ends meet. And then Jesus makes this point. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to some foreigner, a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Well, why, why did he go all the way out there and not help his own people? Because his own people did not approve of him or accept him. If that wasn't enough, Jesus throws in a second one. Also, there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only a foreigner for a, for a, foreign, a commander in a foreign army named Naaman the Syrian. Only was he cleansed. And again, the question, well, why didn't Elisha help more people in his home country, in his hometown? Well, they didn't quite accept him. So Jesus says, this shouldn't surprise you. I, I've come to my hometown. I've told you what I need to tell you. I'm a prophet. I'm sharing you what God wants you to know, but you're looking for something that I can't give you. So as the people start to listen to this, they get a little angry, to, to say the least. They don't like what they're hearing. So all the people in the synagogue, as we finish up here, all the people in the synagogue were furious when this happened, when they heard this. So what they did was they got up, they drove him out of the town um, because it wasn't usually very good to kill someone inside the town. You usually drove him out first and then did your messy stuff out there. They took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in other words, a cliff, in order to throw him off of it. Um, they were furious. They were angry. And here's where I want to make a quick application because we really do the same thing today. We might not drive Jesus to the edge of a cliff and try to push him over, but what, what I do and what we all do, either in small ways or maybe even in a big way, is push him out of our heart, of our life, because he didn't do what we thought he should do. Words are great. It's great to see words, and your, words, your sins are forgiven. That's good, but why didn't he just do that one thing? Why wasn't he there? And so whether, in, like I said, big ways or small ways, the temptation is always there just to push him out because it's so much easier to gain the approval of people and to find our confidence in them, isn't it? Here's a way to think about it. What we do is when we push God out and when we look to the approval of people, we're working for approval that will last a few minutes, that will last maybe a couple of days or a few weeks. The approval of people changes so quickly. And we exchange that for the approval which God promises from God, an approval that lasts forever. Now here's the thing. Back to Jesus here because this is where the importance uh, thing happens here. With Jesus, as he's looking at this crowd, he could have read a different section and gained their approval. He could have said something different and gained their approval. He could have read one of the great stories of how God delivered Israel from Egypt and said, so God will deliver you, my friends. And he could have had them at their, lay, at, at their knees worshiping God. But instead, he read what he had to read, and he did what he had to do, and he said what he needed to say, because he did not need their approval. Third thing I want you to remember today, Jesus had all the approval that he needed. He was there, yes. Some of the things he would do would win people's approval, but his job was not to get people to like him. His job was to do what he needed to do as the Savior of this world, and sometimes that meant that people would not like him for it. But that's what he was focused on. 
So where does that leave you and me? Because so often we find ourselves desperate for attention, which we confuse to be the same as approval. And we so often set aside the approval for God so that we can become slaves to other people's approval. So where does this leave us? Well, there's this interesting thought at the very end of this account that got me asking a question. The people pushed him out of town. They had him on the edge of this cliff, and they were about to push him over. And you have to ask the question, why not go? He, Jesus had the approval of God. We know that from his baptism where God said, this is my son whom I love. I'm well pleased. We know that things were good. Why didn't Jesus just die there? But here's how, the, here's how the account ends, verse 30. Jesus, with this big crowd pushing him out, he just walked right through them. And I love how the Greek, it's, it's the same in the Greek. He just walked right on through the middle of them. And he went on his merry way. Do, 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 do. Jesus is going on his way. It's almost kind of said tongue-in-cheek. He just walked right through him and went on his way because he had other things to do. Now, we don't know if this was a miracle where, where he did something miraculous. We don't know if, this, if he talked him down somehow. We don't know that. But the important part is his work wasn't done. He went on his way. And I, I thought this before. Well, why didn't Jesus just die that day and say, well, there you go. He died for our sins. Or why wasn't it like a heart attack or some medical issue? Why couldn't he die that way? Well, here's why. It's the same reason why he had to open up to Isaiah 61 and read it in front of his people. It's the same reason why he had to fulfill everything that he fulfilled. As you look through the New Testament, stories are put in there and accounts of Jesus' life are put in there for only one reason, so that people could see that Jesus was fulfilling what God had promised would happen centuries, centuries, centuries ago. And here's what happened. As Jesus fulfilled them, it put him into experiences and situations and temptations that are exactly the same as what you and I face today. Jesus wasn't done. He walked through that crowd and he kept moving. Yes, he had approval from God for himself, but the reason he walked out and kept going on is fill in number four. Jesus lived to earn God's approval for you. Because each day, each moment, we can find a part of our heart that's distancing ourselves from God's approval and we crave people's approval and as foolish as it is, that's just the way we are. But Jesus stepped in and said, hold on, hold on, hold on. What you have forfeited, I will fulfill. And what you so earnestly crave from them, I will give to you. Jesus lived on that day to fulfill every little point of what was prophesied about him so that he could win an approval for you from God himself. Now what would that do to your life if you would live every day in that joy and confidence that you don't have to win people's approval because you have the approval of your Father in heaven. And you don't have to think about all the different people that you might disappoint because your status with God has been secured through Jesus. What would that do to your life? And we're running out of time, so just one final thought, one final thought. Back to the original question. Who is the who that makes you do what you do? Who is the who that you spend most of your time f focused on preparing yourself and trying to impress? Well, who is the who that grabs your attention? I want you to know that you have the attention, you have the approval of your Father in heaven. 
And while he sends you out and says, go make disciples of all nations, yes, you need to gain the favor of people. You need to show the love of God, and that's going to be magnetic, I tell you what. But here's the thing. You are not a slave to anyone's approval because you are a freed child of your Father in heaven. And he loves you and has approved of you both now and forever. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we struggle with this. We crave attention. We crave approval from people. And it's, it's an easy trap to, to get ourselves stuck into. I pray that you would give each and every person who's listening to this message the wisdom to do what we need to do with this information. That while we continually try to leverage our influence with people to, to share your love with them, that we, at the same time, would not become slaves to their approval because you've made us free with yours. Give us peace. Give us confidence in that truth that we are your freed children. And to give us that peace until the day that we get to live with your, in your glory, in your face, for all eternity. Bless everyone here in Jesus' name as we join in the prayer that he taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.